We're going to be back in Ephesians, and we'll start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. I'll read down through Ephesians 1, verse 11a. I know I've covered some of uh, that first section, but I, I, again, it, it's one long sentence, and it's really hard to kind of split it up. And, and, but I, I think we should have some in, enter into the passage we're going to study and also see how it spills over into next week. And so we'll start in Ephesians 1, verse 5. And love the Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, the grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God shall endure forever. That you send your word down like rain and it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. That when your word comes down, we become who we were designed to be in Jesus. That real transformation takes place. That pride is plucked out and sin is repented of and joy is rooted where despair is. Our ignorance is replaced with the knowledge of the height and breadth and depth of God's love. I pray now that your spirit would do just that, that as your word has been read and will be proclaimed, that it will not fall upon deaf ears or hard hearts, but that you would change us and make us know more of who we are in Jesus, that you would do this for your own namesake. Amen. So um, if you were to study early childhood development, one of the things that uh, scientists are in agreement upon is the importance of a child's vocabulary, especially in uh, between birth and up to around age four, that studies have shown that if a child has a really good working vocabulary there, then that becomes a healthy map, mapping that, that explains, uh, you know, if they'll struggle in life with learning, if they're behind, uh, if they'll know how to communicate how they feel. In other words, that there's something important about a child's vocabulary and it being built early on that actually blesses them for the rest of their lives. The case I want to make to you this morning is, um, and what studies also show, is that one of the easiest things to do to help and be a blessing for a future adult is to actually spend time reading and actually spend time having conversations with them in the room, that they're picking up on words and vocabulary just by us engaging them and it shapes their minds. It prepares them for the future. It prepares them how to communicate what they feel. It prepares them to exist in the world. And the case that I want to make to you, I think the same is true for a believer, that I think there are some basic vocabulary words that we have to know as children of God in order to navigate this thing called the Christian life. 
that in other words, if we don't get these words into our brains and into our hearts, then we're prone later on down the, lo- down the line to, to, to not understand the fullness of what God has done for us in Jesus. In other words, in the same way that it is important for parents and and caretakers to read and bless and have conversations and expose our children to new words, I would make the case to you that the same is true for our Christian faith. That the ordinary reading of God's word, the ordinary of walking through text in scripture and wrestling with these things in scripture, that they bless us and they help us down the line. And the word that I want to sear on our hearts and sear on our minds this morning or add to our understanding of our salvation is the word redemption. And you see it. You see it right here in verse seven. It says, and now there's a lot of hymns going on. He says that in him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And I think that's the father's grace. But that word right there, redemption, that we don't oftentimes use it. Right. We don't use that in our day to day language. And I think because of that, it's hard to understand why it's important. And what I want to do this morning is sort of let Paul's logic and thinking and writing in this passage actually help us understand redemption and and what it means to be redeemed and what it means to have a redeemer, right? And so what I want to do is look at it through, I want to to let the text guide our understanding. There's a lot of stuff we could get into, but I want to sort of stay in this text and see what Paul teaches us about redemption. And the first thing he teaches us is that the canvas of redemption is human time and human history. So if you want to write that, the canvas of redemption is time. Now, now, why do I think that's important? Because if you notice the way Paul starts out this letter, he says in verse four, even as God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us. In other words, what Paul is doing is sweeping the halls of time. And he is telling us in the first four verses that there are some things that God has done for his people before time began, before the world began. And think about the way that we measure time. We measure time by the, the by the amount of time. I'm, I'm using a word to describe a word, so that's not really right. But we measure time by the earth turning on its own axis and in in, 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 it takes one day to do that. So that's a day, right? We measure a year by the amount of time it takes the sun to, I mean, the earth to go around the orbit of the sun. In other words, when you remove this idea of the earth and you remove the sun and you remove the galaxies, we have no concept of time. And that's what Paul is saying. Before time, before the creation of the world and things seen and unseen, that God had done some things. He did some things back there before eternity passed. He chose you. He predestined you. But here's the problem, right? That those things that God had done before time, they have to break their way into our reality or it's meaningless. It's just a good idea. It's just a good plan. And so here's what Paul is saying, that human time and history, it's the canvas for redemption. Now, what do I mean when I say human time is the canvas for redemption? I want you to think about any great painter that you know. Maybe it's Michelangelo or Leonardo, all the Ninja Turtles who painted famous stuff, right? (laughs) But think about it. You go into the Sistine Chapel 
and the chapel turns into a canvas, right? And you walk into the chapel and you see great artwork on the ceiling of a canvas. Think about the Mona Lisa. That, 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 that canvas, it holds the, the, the very design and outworking of the artist. Think about this, that, that I don't care how gifted you are as an artist. I don't care what kind of brushes you use. I don't care what kind of paint you use or medium you use. That it, it, it is not on display until you can take this paint out of this can and get a brush and put it on something. You see, a canvas, it's the medium by which the artist puts their work on display. And what Paul is saying in our passage is time. Human history is the canvas. It's the canvas that God stretches out. And he says, all of these things that I'm dreaming up and designing before time, I'm going to put it on display in human time and space. Now, what, where do we get this from? You, you see it in our passage, and I know it's at the bottom, but th that's the reason you got to look at this as one sentence, that all of those things happened in verse 4 and 5 before time, but you don't get this time indicator until the verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time. So right there, you start to see that Paul's connecting that back to things God did in eternity. In other words, they're going to work their way out in real human time and space. That's why Paul would also write, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. While we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's one of the biggest problems Jesus had with the Jews of that day, some of them. He says, you know how to interpret the seasons and when night is coming and when, when storms are coming, but you do not see the sign of the times. Look at me and look at what I have been doing. Do you not see that the kingdom of God is now at hand? I will give you no more signs except the sign of Jonah. In other words, when Jesus came, Jesus was trying to press it upon his hearers' hearts that everything that God had decided to do, the time is right now. I'm here. Look at what I'm doing. And so here's what this means. It means that, that every minute and every second and every hour and every day and every week and every month and every year and every decade and every millennia that God says, no, I'm at work right there doing things. And so I know we get caught up in me going to work or me going to the grocery store or me getting my degree. And I know that in my my own life, like it does not look like time is moving towards something, right? It looks like, I tell you how we tend to view time, at least I do, one that is arbitrary, right? That time in history, it's just meandering and it's just kind of going its own way. And if you're powerful enough or wealthy enough or smart enough or in a high enough position, then you can kind of shape that, right? Or it's kind of going nowhere. It's just, man, where, where is it going? I don't know. And here's what God says. Those two answers are not right. God says, I'm at work. The history is really his story. It's what he is doing day in and day out with his plan to redeem the world. Canvas is the time on which God is redeeming things. He's using human history. And so this, 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 this matters when we're shaken by what's going on in history. 
when we're shaken by what's going on in the world, when we're shaken by everything happening around us, we can either be ruffled and be dismayed because it looks like this country's doing this and this person's running this. And God says, no, they're not running nothing. I'm running everything and I'm using history and time. I'm at work right here in it. Be not afraid. Time is serving the father. It's the canvas where he's making something beautiful, even though we don't always see it. So we can rest. I think that's what Paul is saying is time is serving God. That it was only when Jesus came. Do, do we date our time before him as B.C. and his birth or somewhere there around? It's A.D. Like like I wasn't born. I did not change the county system. Right. When you were born, you did not change the county system. But isn't it like God to send his son and the birth of his son, the coming of his son? It delineates all of time. Life before him is B.C. Life after he's born is A.D. And there's coming a new day when he returns and time will end. And when God looks at human history, he looks at what he is doing to advance his own plan. And that's how the that's how the, 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 the people in the Bible view it. He says that all things are working together for the good of, you know, you get that? That all things, anything you're going to, he says, okay, I'm working it for your good in real time and space. Proverbs says, many are the plans of men, but the outcome is in the hand of the Lord. What does God say in Isaiah? I mean, it is absolutely beautiful what he says in Isaiah. The Lord Almighty has sworn as surely as I have planned, so it will be as I have purposed, it will happen. For the Lord has purposed this on the whole earth, and who can annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? That when you look at the book of Acts, Acts 14, it, it speaks as this, Acts 17, that God has marked out our appointed times in history and the boundaries of our land. In other words, the biblical view of history, every tick, talk every day, every year. Don't be discouraged. God's controlling it. He is not at sleep at the wheel. He has not forgotten about you. He has not taken a break and turned it into over to men in power of the world and say, hey, I need you. No, God says I run everything. Be comforted by that. That's the first thing. Time is the canvas for redemption. Now, the second thing that we see is the blessing of our redemption is our adoption. Now, you see that, or parts of it, in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, redemption, it, 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 it comes from this word that means to ransom. And so if you had property, and that you, 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 you could not afford to keep it up. You could sell it, but to get it back, you would have to buy it back. It has this idea of buying something that is owned by another or imprisoned by another. You can buy freedom. There's a debt that needs to be paid. Now, the reason I actually had us, instead of just focusing on 7 through 10, the reason I had us read verses 5 and 6 and also go into verse 11, because Paul's doing something here. I think, he, he, I think he's unpacking something that is absolutely beautiful because in his day, you, you, it was not just about, about ransoming property. You could buy people. Now, stay with me. I know when I say that, I know exactly where I know where my mind goes. 
I think about American chattel slavery. And the moment you hear, I can buy a person, that's right where, at least my mind, it goes right back to how my ancestors were treated, taken from a foreign country against their will, brought to this country, sold. There was no possibility of being free, no rights, no privileges, breaking families up. Like, I, I get it, and I get that that's a hard thing to think about, and I get that there are people out there who have actually used the Bible to justify that practice. They're wrong, and that was sinful, and it, it is abominable in the sight of the Lord. But we still have to deal with what Paul was talking about. And what I want to submit to you is that he has all the pieces of Roman adoption in this passage. All the pieces of Roman adoption. Now, you see it, right? First, you see it because the father chose us, right? You get that up in up in verse four or five, right? You get it because it says, look at what it says. He predestined us for what? In verse five, adoption. So right there, you get the father choosing up in verse four. You get adoption right there in verse five. And then guess what else you get? You get redemption in verse seven. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And go down to verse 11. You get this idea of an inheritance. In other words, if you're going to circle some words, circle all of those, they belong together together. Now, here's what I want, to, I want to read. There's a book, and it's, it's called Adoption, and it's from this series on biblical theology. I think if you want to read more about it, go get it. I will not give you my copy. I, it, is, it is really, really good, though. But here's what the author writes about it, and then I'm, I want to show it to you. The most specific expression of human identity was found in the Roman family. The family was a fundamental bedrock of ancient Roman society. And it was regarded as a primary context for social, religious, political, and economic security. The family life was hierarchical, organized, and structured with the pater familia situated at the apex of the pyramid. All right, so I'm going to cut through all the language, right? There's an old dude. So think about a pyramid, right? And I'm not throwing up the delta sign, so don't, don't get me, right? <laughs> I see you, Jasmine, in my way. But there's a pyramid, right? And at the top of the pyramid would be what they call the pater familias, or the father of the family. And he had a lot, a, a lot of responsibility. Like, it was up to him to provide. It was up to him to teach his, his, everyone in his household religion. It was up for him to teach them the law of the land. And so here's what I'm going to do. I got a little diagram that I put together. I'm going to show it to you because I think it illustrates, right? So this is, I'm just going to give you a warning. This is bad clip art, right? <laughs> it's bad clip art but it's not the clip art I, I want you to pay attention to. I want you to pay attention to the construct, right, behind the clip art. So the first button, that's the, the, I got an old man with a cane, right? He stands at the top, and in Roman law, he had all the authority, that all the authority. Uh, under him was the mater familias, or the mother of the family. She did not have legal authority, but she had legal influence, or, or influence within the home. Under them were their children by birth, their two sons, their two daughters. You can't see it because they got like little crowns on their heads. I need to distinguish them. And under them, all right, next slide, were what they call freed men. These were men who were, uh, formerly had been servants who either, who bought their freedom. They either worked off their debt or what they normally believed that in old age, a, a father 
uh, the father of the family would free them so that their children would not be born into that lower rank. And then under them, you had your servants who worked and they worked for you, kept up the house. Now, here's the thing. This is Roman culture. Every Roman home was, was, was run this way, right? Now, suppose there's another family, right? And it's run this very similar way. All right, the next slide. So now you see the red triangle. Bad, again, bad art, but good point, right? Now, one more time. You got another old man who's over there. Under him is his wife. Under them are their children, and under them are servants. Uh, two more times. One, two, another servant. So their estate, is, <laughs> their estate is not big enough to have freed men, you know? But let's say, and, and here's how it always happened in Roman adoption. Push the button one time. One father of the family could call a meeting with the father of the other family one time, and he could say, hey, I, I want a servant who can do this right here. Uh, what's the debt? What does he owe you? And guess what they could do? They could agree on a sum of money. They would shake, and the deal would be done in the courts, and then they would go separate ways. And then the father of the family would actually tell the servant, hey, your debt has been paid by another. Another person now owns you, and you're to move out and to go into his household. One more time. Now, the father over here, he has a choice, right? He can make that person from the other household. We're just switching debt and switching statuses. You are in my household now, and you're my servant. You work for me. But here's the beautiful thing that that father could do. One more time. He could free him. He could say, your debt is paid. You're a free man or a free woman, and your children are free. And that's a good thing. It's better than being owned. It's better than being a servant. But here's the thing. He could not run for office. He could vote as a freed man on that second from the bottom. You had more privileges than the bottom, but you were not up yet. You could not hold office. Or the father of the family could do this. And you can't see it, but he gets a crown on his head. And you know what that means? You're not a servant of mine. And you're not a freed man in my household. You're like my children born by me and my wife. And this mattered because in Roman adoption alone, when a servant who was a former servant became a child of the family, he got all the rights and privileges of a person born in that family. In other words, in Roman law, the status conferred upon that servant who used to be a servant is you're now a son. And you know what they get that no one else in the bottom gets? They get the inheritance. The freed men do not get anything from the father and the servants do not get anything from the father. Only children by adoption or children by birth that's who gets the inheritance. And so when, when Paul says we have an inheritance in Jesus, when he says that through the blood of Christ we have been redeemed, when he says we have been adopted, when he says the Father takes the initiative, you want to know what he's saying? He is saying, Christians in Jesus, you're not just a servant in your father's home. You're not just a free man in your father's home. You are a son and you are a daughter with all the rights and privileges of every son. We enter into God's family by adoption. 
but we have the rights and privileges as if we were generated there from the beginning. Thank you. That's enough. This is why when you look at your thought of reflection in your bulletin, this is why J.I. Packer says, God does not only justify people and then leave them destitute with nowhere to go like a freed man. He adopts them into the warmth and security of his household. Adoption through the redemption in Jesus is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. It's higher than even justification because it involves a richer relationship with God. And here is what Paul's going to say in Ephesians. You were born into sin. We were born into sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air, just like the rest of mankind. But God says, no, I want you in my family. There is a debt because of our sin. And God says, I will send someone to pay it. And Jesus Christ shows up to pay it, not with money, but with his own blood. And he brings you back into, the, into his father's family. He does not make you a servant. He does not make you a freed man. He makes you a son or daughter. And that is good news. Good news that I struggle to believe. We were in growth group this week and Bryant was leading it and he asked a question. He says, hey, what do you struggle with most about the first part of Ephesians? And I said this right here. Justification, it makes sense that I can stand before, not that it makes sense that I can, but I get the legal declaration when God looks at me and he looks at the work of his son who came to die for me and to pay my sin debt and to give and to take it away. I get that God looks at me as being righteous, but what I don't get is that he looks at me like a son that he's pleased with. And I know why I don't get it, because I see, right? I see how the world has this caricature of a father, right? You need your man cave where you can be alone, right? I get it, where you don't want to be bothered by your wife or your children. I just need alone time. I get it, right? I get that I've been raised by an imperfect father, right? And that, and that colors how I see my father in heaven. And I know some of you in this room, your father did not show up. He walked out on you and your family. I get it that some of you in this room, you've been mistreated by your father. He does not want anything to do with you. I get it that some of you in this room, your father was there in the home, but he would rather be at work making money. I get it that in all the ways, and, and I'm messing my kids up, right? I don't get a free pass. Like, I know, like, my kids are scarred because their daddy is not Jesus, and I know they have father wounds and I'm hurting them through just my personality and my, the way that God made me and my own sin. And here's the thing. The hardest thing is to believe is that my father in heaven is not like that. He does not choose drugs over me. He does not choose another woman over my household. He wants to show up at every game. He's going to give me what I need. He's going to discipline me in love. He's going to always tell me to come in and lay next to him. He's going to fight for me and fight for my heart. He is never frustrated with me, never tired of me, that that is what Jesus has won for you and I, access to the perfect father in heaven. And so here's my word to fathers. As a fellow father, we have to become 
Robin and not Batman, right? That's a big difference. We got to be masters of the give and go. You know what the give and go is in basketball? That you got, you got two men and you got these guys in a pick and roll and one person, got, he has the ball and he can shoot it, but he chooses to pass and he passes it. And now this person has an option. Do I want to shoot the game winning shot or do I want to pass it back? It's a give and go. And as fathers, we're always passing the ball back to our heavenly father. We don't get to be the hero of our kids' lives. But if we can perfect that posture and look our children in the eyes and say, I'm sorry, that there is a father in heaven who loves you way better than I can or will. And by his grace, I'll try, but I'm going to mess you up. But he won't. Here is what I struggle to believe. That I'm not just free from sin. That's good. That I'm not just free to go do Christianity alone, that I'm a son and you're a daughter with those privileges and rights, they are yours in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. If you are in Christ, you are in his home. He loves you. He looks at you with affection and kindness and tenderness. He desires you, he longs for you. He loves you. You see now, redemption is happening in time. And the goal of redemption is not just God paying for your debt, but adopting you into his family, giving you himself and access to all that he has. And the last thing we see that the scope of our redemption is the restoration of all things. Just when you thought that Paul says that the highest end of redemption is our being adopted into the family, you realize that he says that, no, there's even more. There's even a higher good than that. And you see it because he introduces this word mystery. Look at what he says. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite, or I think it should be reunite in the Greek, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, that the first thing you notice is that Paul is about to introduce a mystery. Now, whenever you see mystery in the New Testament, you have to start looking for something here that he's about to show me is profound. And you see him use it a lot, right? You see him use it in Romans 11. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, a partial heart of this mystery, a partial hardening has come upon Israel to the fullness of the Gentiles. And so when you look at, the, at what's happening right now, by and large, Gentiles are, we're all, most of us, all of us are probably Gentiles in the room. But this is kind of the, the period where the Gentiles are coming in and the, the, the Jews, uh, their hearts are hardened towards the things of the Lord. And what Paul says in Romans 11, he says, look, don't be misinformed. This is a mystery. Let me pull back the veil and show you that even this is by God's design. You go down to 1 Corinthians, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And so Paul's telling us what's going to happen in the end when Jesus comes back. Some of us will still be alive that you see him use it in, in, in Ephesians chapter three. I want to give you insight into the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So it's not just Jews, but Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. In Ephesians 3, 9, the mystery has been hidden for ages, 
but it is now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be known to rulers. In Ephesians 5, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, Jesus and his church. That's the mystery. You see it in Colossians. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, whenever Paul uses this phrase, look out for something that is absolutely beautiful in the context. And you want to know what he puts in the context of the mystery. That Jesus isn't just reconciling you and I to God. Paul says Jesus is reconciling all things. He's going to unite all things on heaven and earth. This idea that there is not one single trace of the brokenness of this world in heaven, that Paul is saying that Jesus will not zoop and kind of line everything back up. You see like those movies, right, where, uh, where, where, where there's like chaos and you can, let's say you throw this glass down and it just breaks and all the glass shatters everywhere. But if I hit the rewind button, you kind of see everything and just kind of get right back in its former shape. That's what Paul is saying. Through Jesus Christ, God's going to fix all the stuff that's happened in the world, the revolt in heaven where demons revolted against God and Satan and, and the tension that we feel on the earth between man and man and the tension we have between Satan and the demonic and the tension that we have with the earth that Paul says it groans, it groans for the revealing of the sons of God. Here's what Paul is saying. There is coming a day when God will fix it. He'll fix it all. And this makes perfect sense because if history is the canvas and we've all experienced brokenness in our history, brokenness in the world and all types of atrocities in the world. You want to know what Paul is saying? He's going to fix it. He's going to bring it all back under the head of his son, Jesus Christ. And we will cry no more and sin no more and death will be no more. And we can swim with sharks and we can do all types of Beautiful stuff, right? All the tanks. Ain't nobody finna be shooting missiles in the ocean. We don't need missiles anymore. We're gonna beat the missile heads into plowshares. They don't exist anymore. That there is no worry about who's doing what and what's doing what. There is no racism. There is no classism. There is no sexism. There is none of these other isms because they will be thrown away and repaired forever in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Redemption is not just about God fixing us. That the scope of God's redemption is to fix everything. All things, heaven and earth. He's going to judge who needs to be judged. He's going to give back what needs to be given back. He's going to reward what needs to be rewarded. He's going to exalt who needs to be exalted. He's going to open up and bring us into his pasture and we will live safely forever. That is the scope of redemption. It's not just what God has done for me and for you as individuals. God says, I'm going to repair the whole world. That's the scope of my redemption. That's really good news, family. That's like really good news. I don't, we look at the news and you look at 
magazines and you look at all this stuff and you see the brokenness, you have to know your father is on the throne and he is just and right and he will do what is right to fix everything that's wrong with this world. He's going to do it. Now, I want to close with this, right? What church do we attend? You can talk back to me. Redeemer. So I got to digging. I'm like, man, why do we choose that name? Why do we choose Redeemer? So I, I talked to Steve and Steve talked to Sherry. Come to find out that Redeemer almost was named two other names. And I, I went, Sh Sherry found the stuff, right? So the first name, there was a core group. And the first name was Redeemer Church. That was one. The second name was Grace Community Church. And the third name was Redeemer Presbyterian. And I have actually notes that, that, that Sherry sent me. And Gene Nitt was the one who says Redeemer Presbyterian. He says, when people hear Presbyterian, they instantly think white. So let's not do that, right? <laughs> no, it, I got it in writing, Gene, right? <laughs> Amen. Thank you, brother. But the church was wrestling through what to call itself. And here's, here's the tally of the first vote. Redeemer Church, 22. Grace Community Church, 16. Redeemer Presbyterian, 14. And so we booted Redeemer Presbyterian. We kept the name Redeemer, and it went to a final vote. And the final vote, Redeemer Church, 43. Grace Community Church, 15. Now, I wasn't there when they voted on that name, but I know why. The word that we've just studied, redemption, same root word. Those core people believed what? God is working through history. He is not asleep at the wheel. The greatest and highest good is redemption through a redeemer who would buy us back with his own life and reconcile us to each other, black and white and rich and poor, and also to himself, not as servants or freed men in his home, but as sons with the hope forward looking that God will redeem everything. That's why we're called Redeemer Church. May we all walk in that reality this week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would make much of redemption. The idea of it, the plan of it. That we would make much of the one who redeemed us the son, that we would make much of the outcome of redemption, that we're not just forgiven, but we are welcomed into your home as a son and a daughter with the hope that you're going to redeem not just us, but all things. You will fix us and our world, things in heaven and things on earth. May we not be moved by history, may we not be moved by our temporary pain, may we rest in your hand and in your love for the glory of your son. You who have called us is faithful and you will do it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.